Amen. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 5 as we complete this chapter, we're going to read from verses 12 to the end of the chapter. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes, both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. And as Peter came, by his least, his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, healing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out, said, Go, stand in the temple, speak to the people all the words of this life. When they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. And when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and the senate of the people of Israel and sent to prison to have them brought. But the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this could come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men you put in the prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force. For they are afraid of being stoned by the people. When they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses to these things. So is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey them. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up, claiming to be someone. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census, drew away some of the people after him. He too perished. All who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. When they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Please be seated. Well, in 1520, Pope Leo X issued a papal bull against Martin Luther. It was essentially a citation of Luther that he either recant his writings within 60 days or face excommunication from the church. And this 
excommunication notice, this papal bull was called Exerge Domine, Latin for Arise, O God. And in that, it comes from the prefatory prayer from the Pope, which says, Arise, O Lord, judge your cause, listen to our prayer, for the wild boar from the forest seeks to destroy the vineyard. Well, as you can imagine, that wild boar was Luther himself. That is how he was perceived by the Pope and the papacy. In particular, he was destroying, as it says in this document, the care, the rule, and the administration of the vineyard that was committed to Peter as the head and your vicar or your Pope as his successor. In other words, Luther was destroying the control that the Pope had over the church. But if you know anything about Luther, he believed that he was doing the work of the Lord, that he was being true to the scriptures and the commands of Christ. And he saw that he was trying to point the church in the right direction, the way that they had strayed. And this was his correcting of it. And therefore the Pope and the church should want to be corrected because they were going astray. And in fact, They should really thank him for doing so. Instead of being thanked or even brought into a discussion over these things, he was threatened with excommunication and later was excommunicated and would have been killed as a heretic if he was not protected by the civil leaders in Germany. I give you this brief sketch of church history because it's very similar to our passage this morning. The apostles were doing ministry, they were doing service, they were preaching, teaching the truth which was good for their fellow man. They were not doing wrong, but what was right and indeed good. But you see that not all saw that it was good. The high priests and the council, those that were in power and in control, saw it as a threat. And like Luther These leaders saw them as wild boars destroying their control and the peace of the church. The reality is it was a false peace, wasn't it? Because their control was oppressive. They were holding people in bondage and not giving them the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what we see in the time of Luther, what we see in this passage is that Those that try to be faithful to the Lord and his cause will always be in opposition to the world. And the world will be at opposition with them. And Luke lays out that scenario not once but twice this morning in our passage. But this is the promise. That those that are faithful, those that are obedient, the Lord will always rescue The Lord will use the opposition. He will use the persecution for his own purpose. And so we'll see that in really two scenes. The first scene, you see obedience, opposition, and rescue. And then we have a second scene of obedience, opposition, and rescue. Let's take a look at each one of these. You see the first scene. We remember In Acts chapter 1, that as Jesus left this earth, he gave instructions to his apostles that you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and 
the ends of the earth, and that becomes the outline for the book of Acts. And so far we have seen that the apostles indeed have been faithful witnesses first and foremost in Jerusalem, but not in the back alleys or in tucked away corners or the hidden places of Jerusalem, but we see in verse 12 that they were right in the heart of Jerusalem. They were in the temple, in Solomon's portico. And what do we find them doing? We find them preaching, preaching the truth, preaching the resurrection of Christ, preaching the very thing that they were arrested for, as we saw in Acts chapter 4. But the temple had become their hub of ministry, their gathering place. And as they do so, they know that they were going to attract the attention of the officials of that day. But the reality is they really did not care. They were compelled to do so. They were commanded to do so by Christ. But we notice in verse 13 that this wasn't true of all of them. Notice it says, none of the rest dared join them, which we would take that perhaps believers, perhaps those on the periphery, those that saw that the the apostles were doing, but they were fearful to do the same. They're fearful to go out in public and, and be known as followers of Christ, and so they stayed away. And this is a real fear. One that if we are honest with ourselves, we deal with much more than we like to admit. Sociologists, you've probably heard this before, have shown this. The the peer pressure, social pressure. They have taken a group of children. They've taken a group of ten children. And they've told nine of them that are kind of in on the study that two plus two doesn't equal four, but two plus two equals three. And then they bring in this other child that does not know. And all of these children say two plus two equals three. And what happens to that 10th child? He caves, doesn't he? He goes along with the, the pressure, the peer pressure, thinking that the majority can't be wrong. Perhaps I am wrong. Well, we know that is more than just pressure upon children, isn't it? We too oftentimes fear others cave to social pressures. We think about how we are seen, how we are perceived by others, especially if there is a standard of being on the inside, of being accepted by others, being seen as part of the inner circle. And I tell you that that is becoming more and more a part of our culture, isn't it? Here in America, we're not dealing with what apostles were dealing with here in Acts chapter 5. Christians are not being arrested. They're not being beaten, as some places in the world, even to this day. But what I think we're finding to be much more the case is social intimidation, where you must conform to social cues and cultural norms. And if not, you are ostracized or perhaps even fired from your work. And it's real. And it's, no doubt, frightening. And so the question is, how are we going to respond? Just like those during that day, they did not dare join them, it says. They did not dare join the apostles and kind of come out in public as followers of Christ because they knew what that meant. Are we the same? 
Will we cave under social pressures? Are we trying to be accepted in the eyes of the world? I ask those questions because if that is so, what will happen when the real fire comes? See, right now we're just experiencing the heat. We haven't experienced any of the flames yet. I'm not saying that flames definitely will come, but we should expect that they would. And we prepare now. And our allegiance now will determine our outcome then. And so where is that allegiance? Jesus makes it very clear, doesn't he? When he says that you are for me or against me. There's no middle ground. There's no one foot here and another foot there. Paul says something very similar, very stark, very convicting. When he says in Galatians 1.10, For I am not seeking the approval of man. If I'm trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. I would not be a servant of Christ. That is a hard truth. How many times do I forfeit being a servant of Christ because I am trying to please man? Or I'm even trying to please myself more than Christ. And I say these things, and I I say these things especially to you young people. And when I say young people, I mean everybody younger than me. That the intimidation and possible persecution will most likely be worse for you than it will be for myself and, and my generation. Why is that? Because I believe that myself and those older will just kind of be written off as has-beens, as those that are ignorant. But for you, the indoctrination and the pressure to cultural and social norms runs deep. And the pressure is to, to get on board or there will be consequences. I tell you this morning, by the authority of God and his Holy Spirit and the scriptures itself, do not get on board. Because once you do, it's hard to get off, isn't it? That train will pick up speed and you will find yourself in places that you never thought that you would. And it begins with just little conformity, a little compromise here or there. If you give an inch, as the saying goes, we'll take a mile. And so we must always plant our flag on Christ and upon his scriptures. And that will not make you popular. But you will not have to deal with the crushing blow of compromise. It will not make you, quote unquote, safe. But you'll have a clear conscience before God and man, which is the safest place to be. When I say all of this, and do not misunderstand, do not hear me in the the wrong way, we should not set ourselves up as us versus them. No, there is no us versus them. We as Christians are never against anyone other than the devil himself. We should never see ourselves against anyone that is made in the image of God. No, we are to be servants and we are to be witnesses. That is the last line of our purpose statement, isn't it? That we are called to show forth the love of Christ as servants and witnesses. And therefore, we can never be against anyone, but we must faithfully follow Christ. 
And in faithfully following Christ, you'll find that there are many against you. But let us not be the ones that are intentionally making enemies. Because we are called to love our enemies. And I say that, and I say it to myself, if you ever find hatred or resentment building up in your heart towards, quote-unquote, the other side, you need to repent of that. There's no place for that in our hearts. Yes, we are to hate the sin, but we are to love the sinner, even if their sin is directed at you. We're to continue to minister. Continue to be servants of Christ. Continue to be the least of these as Christ taught. And that is what the apostles did, wasn't it? That they were there, they knew the pressure, they knew that there were those that were going to be against them, and we'll see them in this passage, but it didn't stop them from ministry. It didn't stop them from being ministers and witnesses of Christ. Did not stop them doing healing and works of mercy in very mighty ways as we read here. And what was the end result? Well, the end result was in them being faithful. It says in verse 14, more than ever believers were added to the Lord. More than ever. And it says multitudes of both men and women. Notice that. Women were included as well, which was very countercultural to that time. And so we see that the church was growing, not by just a few, but by multitudes, to several thousands. And this is just Acts chapter 5. We see from Acts chapter 1 to now, the church has grown tremendously. Why? Because of the obedience and faithfulness of the apostles, of the believers at that time. But, as I said before, where there is faithfulness, where there is obedience, so too there will be opposition. And so that is what we see in verse 17. The high priest rose up, and all who were with him, and they were filled with jealousy. You see the motivation, don't you? They were filled with jealousy. They were filled with envy, which are powerful forces of evil that the leaders of that day could not, would not have anyone usurp their authority, their power, with thousands that were converting to the way as they called it. They saw it as defection, away from them, away from their control, away from their power, away from their sway, away from them needing them as leaders over top of them, and they could not have it. It should always be a warning, shouldn't it, of those that are trying to control power instead of serve. Because where you see that, you will no doubt see wickedness nearby. Those that are seeking power are always wanting to be first. Those that are serving and have a service mindset have no problem being last. That's why Jesus says that the first will be last and the last shall be first because it is a heart motivation. If you're putting yourself first, you're always going to seek that power. You're always going to to crave it. But if you are last, 
You've got nothing to lose. And it's actually a very freeing place to be. Have you ever noticed that those are, that are on the, the, top, uh, the top of whatever it is are oftentimes the most neurotic people you've ever met? They always live in constant fear, thinking someone or something will knock them off. It's because they always have to have more, more money, more power, more control. It's never enough. It's because ultimately, it's serving an idol and not the true and living God. And it's a sad existence, isn't it? Why? Because you can't keep anything in this life. All of it will be taken away. Vanity, vanity, says the preacher from Ecclesiastes. So therefore, we need not put ourselves First, we can put ourselves last as servants, and that's what we see with the apostles. They are arrested, and yet they are miraculously delivered. We see the first miraculous prison break in the book of Acts with the angelic bondsman that frees them. And Luke talks about it so casually here. You want more details, but there is no details given other than what the angel says, and he says, go and stand in the temple and speak to all the people the words of life. Notice what he says. Just keep doing what you're doing. He doesn't say go and flee. Go and flee to Galilee, or go and flee to to Egypt, or go and flee to, to Mexico. No, go and do what you were doing. Speak to these people the words of life. And that is what Christ is, isn't he? He is the words of eternal life. Jesus is life itself. Speak to those that are dead so that they may live. Don't you see this cycle of obedience and faithfulness and opposition, but in the end, the Lord delivers. And so what are we to do when when opposition hits? Are we to cower in fear? Are we to go and run and hide? Are we to, to give up? This passage would say, no, carry on. Carry on in faithfulness and in obedience because the Lord will use even the opposition for his own purposes. I need to be reminded of that. No doubt you need to be reminded of that. I know in my own life, not that I have faced the same type of opposition that is faced here, but I know that in trials and and in times of, of temptation, which oftentimes can be spiritual oppression against us, and we must not forget that. It's very easy to be deflated. It's very easy to want to give up. It's very easy to want to just go in the opposite direction. But this passage would call to us to carry on in faithfulness and in obedience And even expect that opposition would come, knowing that you are doing the work of the Lord. Oftentimes, that's how you know you are doing the work of the Lord, is because there is opposition against you. But we're to carry on in faithfulness and obedience. We see it again in scene number two, obedience, opposition, rescue. It's almost like rinse and repeat. The, The apostles go back and do exactly what the angel told them to do. They, they go back to the temple, the very place that they were arrested just hours before. Talk about holy boldness. And then you have what I think is one of the more comical scenes in the book of Acts. The high priest and the council gather together 
to take care of these disturbers of the peace, those that are messing up their plans. And so they send the guards to to go bring them to us. And the guards go and they come back and they have no apostles, no one with them. And we hear their answer in verse 23. We found the prison securely locked, the guards standing at the door. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Notice that they, they start with the good, right? The doors were locked. The guards were in place, but they weren't there. <laughs> Sounds oftentimes like when I'm talking to my children. Did you clean your room like I told you to do? Well, I, I, I took the dog outside. I read a book. I threw the ball with my brother. And, um, well, but, uh, yeah, I was just on my way to go clean the room. Right? So you did everything except what I told you to do. No one was there. But that is not even the best part as they are scratching their heads. As it says, they were greatly perplexed. Someone comes up in verse 25 and says, Look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Remember this place where they were gathered was on the temple mount. And so as the officials are saying, where are they? Someone comes up and says, look, they're over there. And they're doing the very thing that you told them not to do. Leaders must have thought, man, we're not getting through to these guys. And it's again because the apostles do not care. Again, the the freeing nature of living in obedience to God with a clear conscience. The apostles are not afraid, but notice they're afraid because in verse 26 it says that they send the officers to bring them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. They're afraid, but the apostles are not They charged them in verse 28, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But it's really their own omission that they already had brought blood upon themselves. Remember when Pilate arrested Jesus and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. What is it that the people said? What is it that these people said? Let his blood be upon us and upon our children. But we see them now trying to say, we don't have this man's blood upon us. You see this guilty conscience and that instead of taking it to heart, they turn it to to blame upon the apostles, saying, you, you have not done what we've told you to do. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. We see that they continue to point the finger at others rather than pointing the finger at themselves. But what does Peter say? Verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. 
We must obey God rather than men. This is the death blow. This is the crushing verdict, isn't it? That the apostles were obeying God while the council and the high priests were obeying the edicts of men, their own, that which was easy and that which was popular. They were compromising because they were willing to do whatever was convenient, not doing that which was right, that which was faithful and obedient to God. And that is the only time, believers, that we are to disobey. This verse is oftentimes cited as the verse for civil disobedience, but really it's the verse of gospel obedience, isn't it? The gospel may put you at odds with civil authorities and and laws, but that should never intentionally be so. We should never intentionally disobey. But we're always to obey God's truth. And that may put you at odds with the commands of men. But we, as the apostles say here, we must obey God rather than men. We must be faithful to God. Is that our attitude in life? Not just in civil things, but in all things. That I must obey God. I must be faithful to God. I tell you, The reason why we sin is because we do the opposite, don't we? We're faithful to ourselves. We're faithful to what we think is right rather than the Lord. But the apostles' motto, our motto must be we must obey God. And Peter demonstrates that, doesn't he? Because these people told him to stop teaching, stop preaching. But what does Peter do? He brings the teaching and preaching to them. He says, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as a leader and savior to give repentance and the forgiveness of sins so that the Holy Spirit would be given to all that obey him. Peter turns the gospel and actually offers the gospel to these people. It's a beautiful scene, isn't it? These people that were directly responsible for the killing of Christ are now being offered repentance and forgiveness of sins and the the Holy Spirit. And it's a beautiful demonstration that if, if Peter can offer the gospel to these people, then we can offer the gospel to all people, including you and me and others. We should never think that there are those that are too far gone. Perhaps this may be what you think this day of yourself. Perhaps you have believed the lies of Satan himself. That you think your sins are, are too much. That God would never have me. That I have gone too far. I have strayed. And God can never forgive me. I tell you, if repentance and the forgiveness of sins is availed to, available to those who literally killed Jesus, then it is available to you as well. You have not gone too far. I love in the Westminster Confession of Faith, our confessional documents of this church, says these words, there is no sin so small that deserves damnation, but so also there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. Isn't that beautiful? That if you truly repent, there is no sin so great that it can keep you 
from the Lord Jesus Christ and from his salvation and from his forgiveness. And so come to Christ this day and receive this offering of forgiveness through repentance and the gift of the Holy Spirit. But what we see in this passage is that those did not believe. They heard, but rather they were filled with rage and worry and fear. But nevertheless, they were not killed. They were not even imprisoned. Why? Because the Lord once again brought rescue. This time from a very unlikely source, that from Gamaliel, the known teacher of that day, who would have been a who's who. We know of him later in this passage because he had a famous student named Saul of Tarsus, perhaps most likely there that day. And this Gamaliel gives counsel. He says that if this is of man, it will be as nothing, just like we've had others that have come and have risen up and have said that they are these messiahs and their followers after they were done away with came to nothing. But he goes on to say, if this is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be opposing God. And so if it is of man, it is of nothing. If it is of God, it cannot be stopped. This is good counsel. It has some wisdom. But again, it's a pragmatic one, a one of convenience. Notice what he does not say. He does not say we should really investigate this a little bit more. We should maybe take to heart a little bit of what they are saying and what they are preaching. Perhaps this truly is right. Perhaps we need to discuss this resurrection. Perhaps Jesus is the Messiah. No, he does not, or they do not, evaluate any of the truth claims. Rather, they say, what can we do to make this situation suffice? What is the best way? What is the most convenient way that we can kind of get off the hook and and not stir a ruckus amongst the people? So the Lord uses this counsel, which was less than superb, to rescue his apostles. And the Lord does that, doesn't he? We see first he, he rescues by angels in a very miraculous way. And the second rescue was Well, more indirect, he used a man, not even a Christian man. But we should not think that is any less of God. Both of these rescues are of God. If what God works immediately through a miracle or through the sending of angels or he works through means, through the process of men, it's nonetheless the work of God. God is at work. We should be reminded of that. So the apostles here are beaten and released. And then we see this verse, verse 41. They were rejoicing. They were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Rejoicing. They were willing and able to suffer dishonor for the name. It reminds you of Matthew 5.10 when Jesus says, Blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sakes, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so we need not fear. Rather, we should rejoice and even think of it as blessing when opposition comes. I know that goes counter-cultural to our thinking. 
And again, I'm not saying that that will be the case for us, but we must always be ready. We must always be prepared. And that is the mindset that we should have. Acts chapter 5 should destroy the concept of comfortable Christianity, which is convicting because I like comforts. And no doubt, so do you. But do I like it and love it more than Christ? I love it more than the praises of men. Do I love Christ more than what the world has to offer? Do I love Christ more than the the flesh? Again, Luther in that famous hymn said, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. Am I willing, are you willing to suffer dishonor for the sake of Christ? And not only willing, but even rejoicing in it. I finish with this. There was a man named Richard Wurmbrand, who was a Christian who endured 14 years of communist in prison and torture in Romania. He's the man, along with his wife, that started the ministry Voice of the Martyrs. And he wrote about his imprisonment, which was not easy by any means. It really was a test of faith, which this passage demonstrates and tells us about. He says in his first imprisonment, he had to question himself and ask, do I truly believe in God? He says, now the test had come. I was alone. There was no salary to earn, no golden opinions to consider. God offered me only suffering. Would I continue to love him? And the testimony is that he did, and he continued to be faithful, and he continued to minister while in prison. And he wrote this, which is both sad and comical at the same time. He said it was strictly forbidden to preach to others in the prison. It was understood that whoever was caught doing this received a severe beating, but a number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching. So we accepted their terms. It was a deal. We preached, they beat us. We were happy preaching, they were happy beating us. So everybody was happy. (laughs) What a perspective. Would we have such a perspective as that? And I think what summarizes this attitude, which summarizes the spirit of Acts and the early Christians is summarized here when he wrote, often after a secret service, a worship service, he said Christians were caught and sent to prison. And there Christians wore chains with gladness as a bride wears a precious jewel received from her beloved. That is the spirit, isn't it? That surely is the spirit of Acts chapter 5, that we would rejoice in gladness as a bride that has his bridegroom, that has received a blessing from him, and that we would rejoice both in times of peace as well as in times of opposition and even persecution. May the Lord help us to be faithful in all times. Let us pray. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this convicting word, a word that confronts us, confronts our idol of 
wanting to be respected and wanting to, to be accepted and wanting to be comfortable. But Lord, if that goes against following you, then would we forsake it all so that we would follow Christ in obedience and in willingness in the way that you would have for us? Would you find us, O Lord, to be faithful? We cannot do that on our own. We need your Holy Spirit. We need your worth, your word, your truth. We need the body of Christ to walk alongside us and with us. But Lord, no matter what comes, peace or opposition, may we be faithful to you as you have been faithful to us. We pray it all in Christ, our Savior's name. Amen.